Jesus is speaking directly to the twelve in Matthew 10.23. Having already called them, these individual twelve from among the disciples, to himself, given them a commission, acquainted them with the cost that would be associated with fulfilling this calling. And in the 23rd verse, he speaks to them the following words. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel until the Son of Man be come. We're looking into this text again this afternoon, reminding ourselves that there are a range of orientations to the interpretation of this text, and therefore it's with some appropriate that we designate this a tricky text. He was certainly speaking this to the Twelve, and therefore, as with the parallel texts, that we looked at last Sunday, that speak to those that were right in front of him. Remember the language of there be some that are standing here, and then he expresses some experience of seeing his glory, the glory of the coming kingdom. Like with those passages relevant to the transfiguration, so with this passage in Matthew 10, 23, there has to be some interpretation, some understanding that is applicable to the twelve that he was sending on this trial trip. Nonetheless, I submit to you that the key points that we should understand that this passage is addressing are the following. Number one, Jesus is expressing to the twelve and through the twelve to all believers over the entire span of the church age, that the work of the kingdom must continue until the Son of Man comes. And very importantly, with the language that states that they will not have gone over all the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes, and that is correlated with the opening statement that you will be persecuted in these various Israeli cities, I would argue that what he is saying here is that the work of the kingdom, beginning with your experience you are about to embark on, as he looks to the twelve, your experience will have some measure of this attending your ministries, but I want to make it clear that that will be typical, that will be expressing the kind of situation and experiences that the ministration of the gospel will have throughout the church age. It will be persecuted eventually in every city to which it comes, and then ultimately Jesus himself will return. That's the first general idea, but very important idea, that I believe we should draw from this text. The second is that this ministry of the gospel will begin in Israel. Now that is patently obvious 
for any who read this text because he tells them not to go to the Gentiles, not to go to the Samaritans, but only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then he speaks about them going through the various cities of Israel. So obviously in any reading or any interpretation of this text, it must begin with Israel. But I will argue as we proceed in reflecting on the proper interpretation of this text that Jesus is also saying in a very poetic and beautiful stylistic way that Jesus is saying it will not only start in Israel, it will end in Israel because Israel will be the final grouping of cities to which the gospel comes before the Son of Man returns. And there's a beautiful eschatological import to what Jesus says in this passage. So we have seen that given that it is a tricky text, and I recommend that you go back to last Sunday's teaching as needed to hear more fully the details of this text and other texts that are similar to it, to get some sense of why it is somewhat challenging to understand what Jesus is stating. But nonetheless, we have seen that it is vulnerable to the cynical comments of the unconverted. Bertrand Russell, Albert Schweitzer, Johannes Weiss, men such as these have made the remark that argues that Jesus was speaking in a straightforward manner to the twelve, and he fully believed that the kingdom of God would come before they had worked their way through the cities of Israel in the same contemporary situation that Jesus himself was in. Rudolf Boltzmann generally just sees these sorts of statements as being in keeping with the mythological element of the gospel record as the various gospel writers organized material and presented an argument for the Christian faith. He would argue that they inserted mythology, mythological stories within the Christian gospel. C.H. Dodd embraces a somewhat different eschatological orientation than does, for example, Albert Schweitzer. But here again, he would argue that this text works itself out in a certain way that necessitates that the majority of its import takes place within the era of Jesus himself, and it could not go much beyond that era. I bring your attention now away from the cynical comments of the unconverted to what we will call the bogus beliefs from brethren. Now, the choice of bogus is not intended to be an ad hominem phrase or word. It's not intended to be caustic. It's intended to state exactly what is the case. Bogus means counterfeit. Bogus means it might look like it is the genuine, but on closer inspection, you discover that it isn't the real McCoy. I don't know who McCoy was. Well, I think I might have some recollection of it, but the phrase just came to mind. You'll pardon me if you don't care for McCoy for some reason or other. But the bogus beliefs from those that we would call our brethren, and I am fully granting that there are brethren that love the Lord Jesus, that are converted. They are not the unconverted, but they do not interpret the text in the way that I believe it should be understood. So I want to present their argument to you in some measure. We certainly won't be going into great detail 
in any of these directions, nor will we be handling all the various eschatological configurations because they are numerous and hyper-hyphenated. So you can be all sorts of things, and if you don't know that world, I can't digress into it at the moment. What I'm going to be emphasizing in looking at what I would call a bogus belief, but nonetheless held by believers, our brethren, I'm going to be looking at the preterist view, because I think that among the various takes on this text, this is the most compelling This would be the view of men like Kenneth Gentry, David Chilton, Gary DeMar, Greg Bonson, Jay Adams, and our dear R.C. Sproul, to just name a few. Preterism comes from the Latin word praetor, which means past or beyond. And preterism divides into two main camps. That's what I was referring to, by the way, a moment ago when I was stating to you that the various eschatological frameworks and positions that people hold to can be very hyphenated so that you can be a pre or a full or a partial or a mid. The point being that it can get very complicated, but I'm going to spare you the complications and seek to just give you some grip on these issues. And so once again, the term Preterism comes from the Latin word praetor, which means past or beyond. It is divided into two main camps, full preterism and partial preterism. Full preterism holds that all significant events of prophecy, including the millennium and Christ's second coming, took place in A.D. 70, when the Jewish temple was destroyed by the Romans. And you might, as you're reflecting on this, realize that obviously in their interpretation of Jesus' coming, it would have to be spiritual and not bodily, because nobody claims that Jesus came bodily in A.D. 70. Preterism is the view that these prophetic pronouncements have already taken place. They are past. Full preterists argue that everything has taken place, including the millennium and including Jesus' return at A.D. 70, when the Jewish temple was destroyed by the Romans. Partial preterism holds that most of the major eschatological events were fulfilled in A.D. 70, but Christ will physically come again in the future to set up not a thousand-year reign, but the eternal state. So preterism typically does not see any place for a millennium. But as I've already said, these things can be hyphenated. There could be preterists that are post-millennialist, but I'm sparing you some of that pretzel-like reflection that'll twist your minds in all kinds of directions until you get things sorted out. Now, as I introduce this orientation to you, and you see how it is founded upon, it is centered on the destruction of the Jewish temple in 70 AD, I want to stress, number one, that I fully agree that the events that took place in 70 AD were prophetically pronounced, they were predicted by Jesus, 
and they are very significant to our understanding of prophecy, of the program of God, and uh, they themselves are very important historical events that uh, we should pay attention to. And so I would agree with R.C. Sproul, who says in his book entitled The Last Days According to Jesus, the following. He says, quote, No matter what view of eschatology we embrace, we must take seriously the redemptive historical importance of Jerusalem's destruction in 70 A.D. Generally speaking, I find R.C. Sproul to be a level-headed and fair-minded expositor, although I'm not a paedo-baptist, I don't baptize infants, and I don't agree with his eschatological orientation and a number of other things, or I should say at least a few other things. But I do think among the expositors that he is a fair expositor and seems to try to just express himself openly and genuinely and fairly. And what I'm wanting to state to you at this moment is that I agree with that remark. If we were sitting at a table together and discussing these issues, I realize he's gone on to be with the Lord, but if we were discussing these issues, I would fully agree that what occurred in 70 AD is a very important prophetic event. Before I say a few more statements in general about this orientation, I think it might serve you well if I give you a brief definition of amillennialism and postmillennialism, as they will interact and feature with some of the ideas that we're going to be reflecting on. Amillennialism makes use of what is known as the a-privative, which means it's against the idea of a millennium. They believe that the thousand years that is referred to in Revelation 20 and verse 6 is a symbolic reference to the entire period of Christ's resurrection until shortly before his return. So one might call that the church age. That which is spoken of as being a thousand years is a figurative remark that is simply speaking of, as it were, the reign of Jesus after his resurrection through the church and the church's ministry in some formulation or other of what reign would look like. They say that that period will be characterized by the spread of the gospel, but also by the spread of sin. There will be no golden age before Christ returns. Christ will return, there will be a general resurrection and judgment, and then the eternal state will be ushered in. So I trust that is clear enough. They are millennialists. They do not see in the future a period of Christian dominance in one form or another, the success of truth in some powerful manifest way on the earth. They think this is figurative of just a period of time when the truths of Jesus are out there functioning, like, for example, it is today in this building, The truth is being preached. People are being saved. Jesus is doing things in the hearts and lives of others. He is resurrected from the dead and showing himself alive by many infallible proofs of one definition or another. There will be a spread of the gospel and a spread of sin, but there will be no millennium. Post-millennialists 
believe that Jesus will come after the thousand years of whatever that thousand years means, but they are stating their position is that Jesus will come post, after the thousand years that Revelation 20 again speaks of has taken place. The most popular version of post-millennialism argues that there is a millennium, not necessarily a literal thousand years, but there is certainly a millennium in the future, and there will be a period of unprecedented Christian influence in the world, a golden age. And the church during this time, in the power of the Holy Spirit, will have such an effect upon the nations and the populations that Christianity, for all practical purposes, will be in ascendancy, and men will submit their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this will come through the church's ministry and witness, and it will last for, for some, a literal thousand years, for others, some manifest and meaningful period of time, and then after that, Jesus will return. So the return of Christ will be post the millennium. I'll read to you one text that is often pointed to. It's in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, where we read, Behold, he, or Jesus, comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. And so men like Gentry and Chilton and so on, they would argue that that language, those that pierced Jesus, requires that some still be living when this is fulfilled. When Revelation 1-7 is fulfilled, Jews that were involved in the crucifying of Christ necessarily have to still be living. And so when they come to Matthew 10, 23, where Jesus says, Verily I say to you, and he's looking at 12 of his disciples, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man come. In other words, until the kingdom comes with power, they argue that that was fulfilled in 70 AD when Jesus came in the power of his judgment. And they would say again that members of that generation were yet alive when these events took place. And that's what Jesus is referring to, that they had not gone through all the cities of Israel. They had not evangelized within Israel fully, or perhaps in the cities of Israel throughout the dispersion. And before their apostolic ministries were complete, Jesus came in power at, in 70 AD, and the judgments that are spoken of in the book of Revelation and in Matthew 24, when Jesus said, you see these walls, you see these great stones, not one of them will be standing upon another till they all be tossed down. This is their argument. And I think to some extent, you should understand where your brethren are coming from and you can see the sort of rationality that they're working with. Here's a peculiar patristic position 
that I thought I would give to you prior to moving away from thinking about the various alternative views and then looking into what we would say are the arguments against these views. But this peculiar patristic position was held by the late 4th century cleric by the name of Theodore Heraclea. And he understood the coming of Jesus that is referred to in Matthew 10, 23, as referring to simply spiritual guidance. He wrote, his coming is not described as a manifest one, in other words, physical or overt or bodily. Theodore of Heraclea says, his coming is not described as a manifest one at the end of our life. His coming will appear as spiritual guidance and help for those who are persecuted from time to time for the sake of God. Well, this reminds us of various spiritualized interpretations of texts that people come up with when fulfillments don't seem to go the way that they anticipated. And thereby, you sort of move dates around and move ideas around. One is reminded of Millerism or Mormonism, both of whom set dates for the Lord's return. 1843, that didn't work out for the Millerites, and so they switched it to 1844 of the same month, and that didn't work out, so they pushed it down another month, and there have been many over time who have set dates and felt that the right understanding is that Jesus is somehow coming sooner or later, and they stress the sooner. Well, it is a sort of convoluted world that we're trying to sort out, so it's challenging, of course, to take the various spin-offs of different interpretations and try to slow them down and deal with each one one by one. We're not attempting to do that. I'm basically, right at this time, just making it clear that these are some of the orientations and we could multiply the various perspectives. But what we want to do now is what I will call interrogate the interpretations. Primarily, we will interrogate the perspective of Albert Schweitzer and any who feel that Jesus was sincere, if you will, that is to say, well, of course he was sincere. There's a better way of expressing that. What I mean is that there was no depth to what Jesus was saying to the 12. There was no deeper significance. It was just a very straightforward, simple remark. And he thought that the kingdom of God would come before they had finished their ministries throughout the cities of Israel. We will be interrogating that perspective. We will also be interrogating the preterist perspective that argues, no, it was not necessary that it be fulfilled in that way, that before they finished the city, going through the cities of Israel, these particular 12, the preterist position allows the interpretation to go beyond the 12, and beyond the events of basically 30 AD, you know, when Jesus was speaking to the 12 in Matthew chapter 10. It's probably actually 29, but basically 30 AD. They allow, if you will, for the fulfillment of that text, Matthew 10, 23, to go beyond the 12, to go beyond AD 30, but it has to include these individuals. It has to include people alive, people who saw Jesus pierced, people who were standing there. 
People to whom it was said, you will not go through out all the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. And they say it must have that interpretation. And there are very, very many who feel this way, brothers and sisters. There is a very strong representation of preterism and amillennialism within, for example, reform circles and elsewhere. So if you keep in mind those two basic orientations, you will be covering what's out there because they're variations on the themes. Anything other than that, I gave you Theodore of Heraclea to give you the example that you can certainly do all kinds of things with the text, can't you? And you can just make it plainly spiritual. And we have made that obvious or we've made that clear. But keep in mind the two orientations that I've just presented to you. So let's interrogate these interpretations. This interpretation, it seems to me, holds that we have what I will call authorial amnesia. Albert Schweitzer argues the following, and I'm quoting him. Jesus tells the twelve in plain words in Matthew 10 and verse 23 that he does not expect to see them back in the present age. The parousia of the Son of Man, which is logically and temporally identical with the dawn of the kingdom, I agree with that, Albert Schweitzer, but I don't agree with what you say next, will take place before they shall have completed a hasty journey through the cities of Israel to announce the coming of the kingdom. That the words mean this and nothing else, that they ought not to be in any way weakened down, should be sufficiently evident. Well, let me ask you this. Among the individuals that was standing before Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, was not Matthew one of them. So what you're telling me is that when Matthew writes his gospel in approximately 60 AD, which all agree with, he somehow had a memory meltdown and forgot that this never came to pass, and yet wrote it in his gospel anyway, as a motivation for himself and others to represent Christ and to preach this gospel and to be excited about it. How can you imagine that these men would write these things, be excited to preach the gospel of this Lord Jesus that they're serving when they knew that he promised them something that did not come to pass? Did he forget that it didn't happen? Are you comfortable with a world of utter silliness? That's number one. Here's another interrogating question. If you can somehow satisfy yourself that Matthew had a memory meltdown or didn't care about writing nonsense when he himself was a recipient of these statements, if you can get beyond that, can you get beyond the question of involving a messianic mistake? What again is the statement that is made in Matthew 10, 23? Jesus said to the twelve, You shall not have gone over the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. That's Matthew 10 and verse 23. Several months later, not very long later, we're in Matthew chapter 24. And this same Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 and in verse 36, But of that day, 
And of that hour knoweth no man, not the angels of heaven, only my Father knows. In Mark 13 and verse 32, listen how it is stated in Mark's gospel. The same idea that we just read to you from Matthew 24 and verse 36. But of that day and that hour knows no man. No, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father only. He effectively included the Son in Matthew 24 because he said, but my Father only. But in Mark 13, in verse 32, he plainly says, the Son does not know the day or the hour. So do you really think that just a few months earlier, Jesus is looking at his 12 apostles and he is thinking straightforwardly, you will not have gone over the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. I mean, how long could that take for them to go through the cities of Israel? You are certainly within a time frame and even within a series of events that is definable, meaning they could pay attention and check off the list as to how many cities they've gone through. And if what Jesus is saying was intended to be straightforward in that sense, they could know to the day or very close to the day when Jesus would have to come. So what you're seeing here is obviously, as I stated last Sunday, it was not beyond Jesus to speak in this stylistic, profound, prophetic language that entails deeper interpretations than just what appears on the surface. We're not forcing Jesus into doing that sort of thing. We're saying he does that. That is a way in which Jesus speaks, and we have to be attentive to that and allow the Holy Spirit to guide us into the deeper truth of what he is speaking about. Now, in thinking about allowing the Holy Spirit to guide us into what Jesus is actually speaking about, let's start with this. The phrase, Son of Man, come, or any configuration of that, the phrase or the language of the coming of the Son of Man is a technical phrase. So everywhere it is used, it's speaking of the same event. Let me make that clear to you, and let me show you why when one understands that the language of the coming of the Son of Man as a technical phrase, referring to a particular event, that when you realize that, and you discover its use in various other locations, you will not arrive at the preterist position. You will not arrive at the straightforward Albert Schweitzian position. And therefore, you must recognize we have to think more deeply about what is being said here. You see, I'm making these arguments not so much with respect to Albert Schweitzer that I think any of you are vulnerable to that. Even preterists will dismiss Albert Schweitzer. Most will as far as that kind of interpretation. But what I'm saying to them, and they already do, of course, embrace a more cryptic, if you will, a more deep interpretation, not as, as obvious as just straightforward talk, because they allow that the interpretation goes beyond the 12 in some sense, and certainly goes beyond that particular journey that the 12 had in Matthew chapter 10. So keep in mind that the coming of the Son of Man is a technical phrase. 
And then reflect with me on what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24. We will see in the 30th verse that he will be speaking about the Son of Man coming. It's the same event that he's referring to in Matthew 10, 23. This is a technical phrase. But listen to the language of Matthew 24 that surrounds the coming of the Son of Man and think to yourself, could this apply to the events that were associated with the 12 going on a trial trip through the cities of Israel before Jesus' crucifixion. Matthew 24, verse 29 starts with this language. Immediately after, after, the Son of Man's coming is going to be after something, after the tribulation of those days. Well, so far, I suppose that could fit with Matthew 10, 23, because Jesus said, you go out, you'll be persecuted, and then the Son of Man will come. But he goes on to describe what the nature of that tribulation is going to look like. And remember, he says, the Son of Man's coming is going to be after these events. And the Jesus that is speaking in Matthew 24 is the same Jesus with the same mind and the same knowledge that is speaking in Matthew 10, 23. And listen to what he says. After the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from the heaven. Is anyone going to seriously argue that during the ministry of the 12 in Matthew 10, or on any other event that has occurred since Jesus spoke those words in Matthew 10, 23, is anyone going to argue that the sun was darkened, the moon did not give her light, and the stars fell from heaven? Well, as a matter of fact, some do. But they are highly spiritualizing these interpretations. And I'm going to seek, realizing I won't convince everyone, that's not what I'm attempting to do, but I'm going to seek to interrogate these interpretations and state that you would do better to believe when he says the sun will be darkened, that's exactly what he meant. When he says the moon will not thereby, or therefore the moon will not give its light because the sun is darkened, that's what he meant. When he said the stars are going to fall from heaven, that's what he meant. Could it also include the falling of spiritual principalities and powers? Yes, but it, it refers to the stars from heaven. The next phrase is, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. So there's your Revelation 12 and the powers of the high on high being shaken. And look at verse 30. And then, not after you've gone through all the cities of Israel, and that's all there is to it. No, after the sun has been darkened, after the moon doesn't give her light, the stars fall from the heaven, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man. And where? On one of the streets of Jerusalem? In heaven. And then shall what? Just the cities of Israel have some sort of response. All the tribes of the earth shall mourn. Let's think about that language of all the tribes of the earth. When we come to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7, we read, Behold, Jesus comes with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And our preterist friends argue... And they're very intelligent. I respect their minds and I'm not demeaning them or taking them lightly. But I am presenting their position to you. They argue that the language of Revelation 1-7 
stating that they which pierced Jesus requires that this fulfillment of what is spoken of in the book of Revelation includes individuals who were alive when Jesus was crucified, Jews that were alive when Jesus was crucified. But what then do you do with this? And all kindreds of the earth, pasai, ai, fulai, taste, gase, all the tribes of the earth shall wail because of him. Going back to Matthew 24, the Son of Man will be in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn. In 70 AD, dear brothers and sisters, the gospel had not gone out to all the tribes of the earth yet. And you might be gathering in your minds something else that is very a very powerful argument against a preterist position, and that is that they obviously have to hold that the book of Revelation was written before 70 AD. And yet there is almost unequivocal early testimony to the fact that it was written in the era of Domitian, the emperor Domitian, who reigned after Titus. And so Irenaeus, for example, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, states in his early writings that everyone knows, as it were, you know what I mean? Like it's universally held that the book of Revelation was written in the era of the emperor Domitian. Well, you know we're not trying to deal with everything that comes our way in this complex study. But I'm wanting to underscore that if the book of Revelation was written after 70 AD, then it's a little silly to think that the events in the book of Revelation are speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem when it already happened. That is a very, very strong weakness in their argument. Back to Revelation 1-7. We are told that all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Well, in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, we read that there is going to come a time when the Spirit of God will be poured out upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and of supplication, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for his only son." and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So I'm showing you that there's a harmony between these various texts that has as its feature that, yes, it is true that those that pierced Jesus will mourn. And there is something profound about that, something specific about that, and we should do something with that, and we do, as those who are not replacement theology advocates, and as I've stated in this study already, the gospel will begin in Israel and will end in Israel. The gospel will yet come to the cities of Israel and will affect the, affect the hearts of the Jewish people in a profound way, and their hearts will be prepared through this pouring out of the spirit of grace and supplication to indeed mourn when they realize that they crucified their Lord Jesus. They will mourn and all the tribes of the earth will mourn as well. Then the Son of Man will come. 
So when Jesus says you will not have gone throughout all the cities of Israel, there's actually a deeper truth that he is driving at there that I will just state loosely in this way. He knows that the gospel is going to begin in Israel, but it's going to be rejected by the Jews and it will most prominently go out to the Gentiles and we will have, as it were, the age of the Gentiles which some would call the church age. And within that context, the focus will not be on Jews nationally, but Romans 11, Romans 9, Matthew 24, Revelation 1, 7, Zechariah 11, excuse me, Zechariah 12, 10, that the time is coming when the gospel will be going throughout the cities of Israel again. And there'll be an active ministry among these cities and it'll have to work through all these cities because there's a sense in which they're not receiving the spirit of grace and supplication like the Gentiles are and all the nations are. So this gospel's first going out to all the nations, but when the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, then God's going to turn his attention back to the Jews and the gospel will once again go through all the cities of Israel and then the Son of Man will come. That's Matthew 10, 23 for you. And you can see... As we look through Matthew 24, we just read, didn't we? Let's, let's pick it up at 30 again. Matthew 24, verse 30. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. By the way, where was the Son of Man in heaven in 70 AD? You have to spiritualize everything. Then will, and what kind of sign is that? I mean, you, I guess you can say it's, I mean, the sign is judgment, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that, but it wasn't in heaven. It was on the walls of Jerusalem. <laughs> it was in the armies of Titus and Vespasian. It, it wasn't in heaven. It's, it's just not honest, in my view, thinking to say it was in heaven. And then shall all the tribes, where were all the tribes in 70 AD? Let alone where were they all in Matthew 10, 23? Where were all the tribes? All the tribes of the earth, not the Jews. Where were all the tribes of the earth? That's the Gentiles shall mourn. And they... They, just like Revelation 1-7, they, who's the they? All these people, the Jews and all the tribes of the earth, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. I told you already, the language of the Son of Man coming is a technical phrase. So I will point you to Daniel chapter 7 in verse 13 and 14 to support that statement and since we just read this phrase out of Matthew 24, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion, and glory, and a kingdom that all people, nations, and tongues should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now, dear ones, in Matthew chapter 10, 23, there were no clouds in the heavens that Jesus came in. He specifically limited their ministry to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, so it wasn't even possible for all the nations to believe. So he couldn't have come to all peoples, nations, and languages, 
And they certainly haven't been serving him ever since Matthew 10, 23. And nor did these things happen in this way in AD 70. His dominion hasn't been set up as a result of what transpired in AD 70. Although our amillennialist friends would argue that it has. That's why I've sort of given you some of those ideas. So you just know a little bit of what we're talking about here. They would say, well, yes, he has. Because the gospel is still true and his judgments manifest that they should have received their Savior and they were judged accordingly. And there's a degree of truth to that. But let's continue thinking about this. The Son of Man is going to come in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Well, obviously it didn't happen in Matthew 10, 23. And did that really happen in 70 AD? Verse 31 of Matthew 24. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. Whose trumpet was that on either event? And they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn a parable of the fig tree, when his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that the summer is nigh. I would submit to you that what we just read is another statement from Jesus that has deep import into it that isn't evident to just a casual reading. One has to search the scriptures to see whether these things are the way that you're thinking about them. When you search the scriptures, you will come to realize that the fig tree is a symbol of Israel. And he says, when the branch is tender and putteth forth leaves. You know that the summer is nigh. The millennium is nigh. I've already given you a text that speaks to the tenderness that this passage refers to. Zechariah 12.10. When the fig tree begins to put forth branches again, and those branches are tender, when the spirit of grace and supplication and mourning comes to their hearts, and it begins to put forth leaves again, then the Son of Man is going to come. You say, Brother William, why are you saying again? Because of what we know transpired in Jesus' first coming, His first advent. In Matthew chapter 11, we read these events. On the next day, when they were come from Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and seeing a fig tree afar off. That's important. The fig tree is afar off. It isn't time for this yet, but Jesus is going to work something out in a typical prophetic fashion, like Jeremiah with the marred girdle, like Isaiah in clothing of captivity, like Ezekiel eating his food by the fuel of cow dung. Jesus is working something out purposely, prophetically, because after all, he's a very deep individual, far more deep than is Bertrand Russell or Albert Schweitzer or any of us. And he sees the fig tree afar off, and what's its state? It has leaves, having leaves. And he came if perhaps he would find some fruit on it. But we are told that the time for the figs was not yet. And Jesus knew that. He is manifesting that Israel is not in a spiritual condition to receive him as their Messiah yet. And it is a tragic situation, which is manifest 
by his language when we read that he came and he found nothing but leaves. For the time of the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 12 was not yet. For the time of the figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of you hereafter forever to that specific fig tree, which shows you that he can address something specific while speaking through it in a typical way to something more fulsome. And it is very sobering to realize that Jesus came to this fig tree, a symbol of Israel, having leaves because God had put it into good ground, but it had no fruit. It wasn't producing the spiritual benefit of what God was blessing it with. And he curses it. He curses it into eternal judgment. That fig tree died, uh, died by the roots. And what we learn there is that judicially, Jesus could have cursed the entire nation of Israel from the roots, and it would have been exactly what they deserved. But he is merciful, and instead he went to the cross to pay for their sins. This is just before he's going to the cross. And he is manifesting in this act what the nation of Israel could have been dealt with if God was just visiting justice upon their sinful lives. It's quite remarkable. He comes to the fig tree and it has leaves. We go back to Matthew chapter 24 and he says, learn a parable of the fig tree. How are you going to understand this parable of the fig tree? You have to look at things new and old. You have to go back to Jesus' ministry and realize he came to a fig tree that was tender enough and had leaves, but it had no fruit. The wonderful thing is, dear brothers and sisters, is that the day is coming when the gospel will go throughout the cities of Israel and it will bear fruit this time in a marvelous way. So in verse 33, Jesus says, so likewise you, when you see all these things, that's important to stress, all these things, which means Jesus knows what he's talking about. In other words, there can be typical proleptic manifestations of some of these things in various events over time, like, for example, at the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But if all these things aren't occurring simultaneously, then his statement doesn't hold where he says, know that it is near even at the doors. Then he says in verse 34, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. I like to stress that the language of verse 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. When Jesus says, verily, verily, in these various passages like Matthew 10, 23, here Matthew 24, 34, verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass away. When he says elsewhere, he that endureth to the end shall be saved. He said that to his disciples when he was sending the 12 out in Matthew 10. What I'm stating to you is there is a depth of understanding, a profoundness to what Jesus is saying that cannot be prima facie. That's just like plain on the face of it. He's saying heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not. They are very deep. So yes, there is a demonstrative pronoun to this phrase, this generation. I am well aware of that. And one then would ask, 
our predator's friends would come back and say, how can he say, hey, Ganea, how te? This generation, a demonstrative pronoun, which has to mean something. Do you not believe that, Brother William? I would say I absolutely do. Every jot and tittle is important. We need to be exegetes and not eisegetes. We need to read the text and take it for what it is saying. But I've already asked them a number of questions. Do you think Matthew had a memory meltdown? Do you really think the book of Revelation was written before 70 AD? It doesn't work. You need to see things differently. And I'm already manifesting to you that the same Son of Man who talks about the Son of Man who knows Daniel chapter 7 and is purposely addressing himself as the Son of Man, that technical phrase used in various locations show that you cannot interpret Matthew 10.23 in this coming of the Son of Man in some simplistic fashion as if he's just going to meet you ultimately in one of the cities of Israel. It's far beyond that. And what I will further now say is that the phrase, this generation, is also a technical phrase. I'll give you some passages that make this clear, but we'll have to satisfy ourselves with only a few because each of these points requires a whole teaching on its own to fully deal with the issues. Matthew 10.34 uses the phrase, this generation shall not pass away. But in Matthew chapter 16 in verse 4, Jesus uses this language. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Now reflect on that language. It is not a historical remark. It is a descriptive remark. A wicked and adulterous generation, whenever people are seeking after signs... That is a wicked and adulterous generation. It is a descriptive demarcation, not an historical statement. So in other words, when he uses the language of wicked and adulterous prior to generation, what he's saying is, if a generation has these features attending it, Wherever we find it over the course of human history, it's wicked and adulterous and seeks after a sign. That's what I'm talking about. And he's saying, you that are standing in front of me, you're an example of this right now. And so I'll be repeating myself while I go through some other texts, but I'll just state for good measure now, when Jesus is saying, this generation shall not pass, he's not speaking to an historic limited group of people that are those that are right in front of him currently living. He's saying those that fit within the description of what I've just told you about, when all these things come to pass, that generation, that grouping of people that fit into that description will not pass away. Because the word generation, that concept, refers to a phenomenon existing among a people, and we call that a generation. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 19, this is after the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus. He comes to the bottom of probably Mount Hermon. And you'll remember that the remaining disciples or apostles are struggling with a demonically oppressed young man. And the father as well is not able to deal with this demon-possessed boy. And Jesus makes this remark in verse 19 of Mark 9. Jesus answers him and says, O faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? 
I trust you see that that phrase was not limited to just the Jews of that time. It stands for a concept. It stands for a phenomenon. It stands for a spiritual condition. Faithless generation. There have been many of them over time. And that's the way this language works. Why we go all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 35. And we see this kind of language already used in the sacred text. There we read, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see the good of the land, which I swear to give unto your fathers. Is it applicable to those that Moses was speaking to? Certainly. But it's applicable to any generation that manifests the same sort of evil. You could go right back to Deuteronomy 135 and say, these warnings apply to you because you have the features of this evilness and you could do the same with any of these other statements about a generation. If you fit this description, then you are the generation we're talking about. It would seem to me that the following text fully proves the point that I'm making. It's found in the book of Proverbs in the 30th chapter. And it uses the phrase of generation four times, and it reads like this, beginning in verse 11. There is a generation that curses their father and does not bless their mother. Which generation is that? Whatever. You, you can say this generation. Whenever they manifest those characteristics, that's the generation we're talking about. There is a generation that appear in their eyes. When is that generation in history? We don't know the day or the hour. By the use of this phrase, it's not telling you an historic time. It's not saying in the Middle Ages or in the 21st century. If it's true that this is applicable now, you know that by looking at the description that attends the statement of a generation. If there is those, if there are those that are pure in their own eyes, and yet they are not washed from their filthiness, then that's the generation. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are as swords, and so on. So I think you can see with me that when Jesus says, this generation shall not pass away, it isn't limited to those that are standing right in front of him. And it doesn't require that it has to happen by 70 AD, because that's not the way this phrase is working. He's just described a group of events and situations and saying, that's the generation. Now think with me about how this is working. When we understand that the statement about a generation is, is a descriptive demarcation, not a historical demarcation, and then we couple that with what we've already read in Matthew 24 and verse 36, when Jesus says, but of that day and hour knows no man no, not the angels that are in heaven, but my Father only. Are you following with me that all these verses are essentially consecutive? Verse 34 of Matthew 24 says, This generation shall not pass. Verse 36, Jesus says, Nobody knows the hour. But verse 37 is going to state, You don't know the day of the hour, but you do know the generation. You do know the description of what it will look like. That is known. The day or the hour is unknown. The generation is known. Because in the next verse, after 36, Jesus says in verse 37, But as the days of Noah 
were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. That's a description. It's not a particular day. He isn't saying on a particular day, the day of Noah, that's on your calendar somewhere. That's when Jesus is going to come. That's not what he's referring. That's not what he's referring to. He's saying as the days of Noah, when the generation is described again, as were the generation of wickedness in the days of Noah, then the son of man will come. Now, let me ask you this. Were the days that were in existence in Matthew 10, 23 and roughly 29 AD, or the days at the destruction of the temple in AD 70, were they equivalent to the days of Noah? If you think they were, you better buckle up now because we're getting closer and closer to those actual times. And you will realize that for all of the apostasy and the degeneracy that was very much in place during those times, it can get much worse because it can become, here's the key, universal. What was going on in Jerusalem with crucify him, crucify him, I grant it is wickedness in a high manifestation. And what the Jews were doing in general, and how they conducted themselves during the siege of the temple in Jerusalem was also a powerful manifestation of debauchery and wickedness. But it was not universal as it was in the days of Noah. That is a description of a universal situation when all the tribes are going to be in this kind of spiritual state. So we don't know the day of the hour, but we do know the generation. It's the generation when all these things are coming to pass and all these judgments are building because they are the generation. How lofty are their eyes. They fear not God. Now, if we go to Mark chapter 13, just to observe a few things that Mark has to say in his account of the Olivet Discourse, beginning with verse 32, Jesus again says, But of that day and that hour knows no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take heed, watch and pray. Look what he says. For you know not when the time is. How can he be saying that in Matthew 13, and yet be saying in Matthew chapter 10, to his 12 apostles, before you get through the towns of Israel, the cities of Israel, I'm going to come. And then be saying to them, you don't know the day or the hour. We could spend a lot of time with this, but you reflect on how these things show that very clearly what he was speaking about is something more profound and deep than just some plain, straightforward remark. And then he says, for example, in verse 34, for the son of man is as a man taking a far journey. A far journey. I mean, try to harmonize that with Matthew 10, 23. We could be doing this all night. Are you following what I'm saying? Matthew 10, 23, some argue, is Jesus is looking at disciples saying, I'm sending you throughout the cities of Israel, and before you get through, the Son of Man is going to come. In Mark 13, Jesus says the Son of Man is going to go on a far journey, and he's going to leave his house. And I would argue that the house there is primarily referring to the temple, not the house of Israel so much, but it's referring to the temple. He leaves their house onto them desolate, which means there's still hope for the nation. But that temple was going to be desolated, which it was. 
and he leaves the house like was the case when the Shekinah glory left out the east gate in Ezekiel's time. Then he says all the way down to verse 37, listen to this language. He says, and what I say unto you, I say unto all. Think of the prophetic hermeneutic principle that's built into that. What I say to you, I am also saying to all. So we can have a double or expansive application. In Matthew 24, there's language like the following. In verse 43, If the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come. In verse 34, he says, In such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. May I ask you, it's obvious that doesn't work with Matthew 10, 23 as being a straightforward fulfillment. You know, you go throughout all the cities of Israel, and then I come. How could he say to them, you don't know? That would be a lack of obedience from their side. He just told them, if that's how we're supposed to understand it. And how could he say that I'm going to come at a time when you think not? When he just told them, when you go throughout all the cities of Israel, then I'm going to come. But similarly, my hope is that you can see how that just does not work with some sort of simplistic interpretation in Matthew 10, 23. But I'm hoping that you will see to me, see with me that the events of AD 70 also don't fit with this language because when you're watching the Roman legion surround Jerusalem in the temple and you start seeing the temple stones being ripped down, you would conclude the Son of Man is coming. And that's what they argue, by the way, that the Son of Man did come then. But what I'm trying to say is, he says it won't come at a time when you think it will. In fact, he even goes on in Matthew 24 to speak of a spiritual climate within which even those who constitute his ministry will say, my Lord delays his coming. My Lord delays his coming. I don't think that events that took place 30 years after Jesus' resurrection would really fit well with that kind of conclusion, my Lord delays his coming. And then how about this? In Matthew chapter 23, and in verse 39, which occurs just before Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse, Jesus makes this remark, I say unto you, you shall not see me again till you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Will somebody please explain to me who was present among the Jews in 70 AD who was saying, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That didn't happen. They were all in rebellion against God and against everyone around them. Perhaps that's the sort of statement that one has to ruminate on in order to realize how powerful of an argument that is against the coming in 70 AD. He said, you won't see me again till you say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The whole point of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is that the Jews were continuing in their rebellion. You say, well, there probably were believers. No, the believers were taken out of Jerusalem and were relocated in Pella and were preserved out of this judgment. And there wasn't anybody there saying, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. You need to read Josephus' text. They were cursing God and everybody else. That's what they were doing. 
even in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, when the apostles come to Jesus and they ask him, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? He says, it's not for you to know. Well, when did that start? When did he get that opinion? According to some interpretations, he didn't have that opinion in Matthew 10, 23. He had the opinion, it is for you to know. I'm telling you, I'm going to come after you go through all the cities of Israel. Now he's saying it's not for you to know. Now I can spin out a book like Albert Schweitzer and say all kinds of blasphemous things about Jesus, how that having failed, he rearranged his thinking. But of course, for Albert Schweitzer, Jesus never rose from the dead. So he's not even in Acts chapter 1 and, and verse 6 with, with a resurrected Christ. So what I'm saying to you is, is Jesus never meant it in that way to tell them specifically when he is going to come. As I said at the beginning of these studies, both on this day and also last Sunday, what he is saying is that the work of the kingdom must continue throughout all of history, all the way until the coming of the Son of Man. And no matter how difficult the experiences must be, he's encouraging them, keep going to the next city. Keep going to the next city. If they persecute you in one place where they used to receive the gospel and the climate has changed and they don't want it anymore to such an extent that the persecution makes it useless to even stay there, go to the next city then. And you'll be persecuted there as well to some degree, but stay as long as you can until they persecute you out of it. And then go to the next city. And you will have not gone through all the cities and experienced this sort of phenomenon, which says something about you, disciples, and it also says something about the nations and the tribes and the peoples to which you will go. Meaning, it won't always start with persecution initially, but in every place where the gospel goes, they will eventually turn against it to the extent where you will have to flee the city. And then it will go to Israel. And it will move through all of Israel relatively quickly. And there'll be persecution in that context as well. And then the Son of Man will come.